Uh, good morning, everyone. Would you turn your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 22? We're continuing our studies in the Gospel of Luke. So Luke chapter 22 and verse uh, 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on, uh, on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of his own inspired word. Sunday afternoon or late afternoon around tea time was always a great uh, time in our house when I was a teenager because it was then the top 40, the new top 40 was released and you would listen on your radio, and if you had one of those tape recorders that was connected to your radio, you would try and hope that the DJ didn't talk over the introduction so that you could record the songs. And uh, I'm sure all copyright uh, uh, agreements were infringed, but that's, that's the way we did it uh, back then. And it was always a great source of discussion in school the next day, who was number one, who was likely to be number one, and who climbed in to the top 40. Now, since then, we have all kinds of, of charts, um, the top 40 mo- movies of all time, the top 40 musicals of all time, the top 40 best-dressed celebrities of all time, the top 40 phone apps of all time, the top 40 computer games of all times. Uh, now, interestingly enough, that has actually made its way into the Christian church. And in America, you not only have the, the top 40 pop charts, rock charts, country charts, but gospel charts. And not only do you have the top 40 Christian artists, but you also have the top 40 preachers, the top 40 evangelists, the top uh, 40 worship leaders in America. Interestingly, enough All-American. And just in case you think that's solely a phenomenon in America, back in the 1970s, the Belfast Telegraph produced a a poll of the top preachers, 10 preachers, the best 10 preachers in Northern Ireland. I'll let you guess who was number one, but it's not too hard uh, to imagine who that might have been. Interestingly enough, our own pastor, Val English, made it into that top 10. Now, all of us, I'm sure, would recoil at that kind of thing. There's something distasteful and deeply unspiritual, uh, unspiritual about reckoning preachers or indeed any other kind of ministry in that kind of chart. How on earth do you ever judge or assess a person's ministry uh, and then, as a result of that, put them into a chart? Well, actually, Jesus says that you can. And in this passage, he gives us the criteria that is to be used. But again, 
uh, as so often it is with our, our Lord, His thoughts aren't our thoughts and His ways aren't our ways. Now, from the passage, I want you to notice five things. First of all, the argument that developed. The argument that developed. You see that in verse 24. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Here we're told of a dispute that arose among the disciples, a dispute over who was the most important and who was the most significant of the group. Now, this is both pathetic and tragic. It's sad and depressing. They argue amongst themselves if, uh, as to who would be the greatest. If you remember back to our study last week, our Lord, through the institution of the Lord's Supper, had uh, physically uh, uh, predicted in a pictorial way that he would suffer, bleed, and die, that his blood would be shed. He had announced to them that this was the last time that he would drink of the fruit of the vine. In other words, his death was imminent. That soon, in fact, the very next day, he would be, as Isaiah says, cut off from the land of the living. Secondly, he had told them, through the institution of the Lord's Supper, that his death would be a substitutionary death verse 19 of the same chapter, this is my body which is given for you. Verse 20, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That he was dying in their place to purchase their salvation. And yet, in spite of that great revelation, here they are arguing about who would be the greatest. I remember when my mother died, um, we weren't allowed to go to the funeral, which I, I think now, on uh, hindsight, is a mistake, because I think going to a funeral is very much part of the grieving process. But I remember being brought back from an aunt's house at 12 or 13, and entering our house, which was actually full of people, and they were talking and chattering and laughing. And I just wanted to shout out at the top of my voice, um, don't you realize that my mother has just died? It just seems so inappropriate and so insensitive to be talking about ordinary things at a time of extraordinary grief. Well, high inappropriate to be discussing who they considered to be the greatest when Jesus had just told them of his death in a graphic and detailed way. My commentators speculate as to the circumstances that give rise to the argument. Was it the seating arrangements of the disciples? We know that at this Passover meal, John was seated uh, at the right hand of Jesus, the place of honor. Did everybody expect Peter to be there? Actually, because he was the uh, unofficial spokesman of the disciples. Was there jealousy over John? resentment that Peter wasn't given the place of honor, but John, well, we don't know. But whatever the circumstances, it was just so blatantly inappropriate to be arguing about preeminence when Jesus had just predicted his death and told them that his death would be in their place. It just seemed wrong that that should be the case. And yet, there is that tendency in us all. We all love to be loved. We like 
to be liked. We hate to be overlooked. J.C. Ryle says, the sin before us is a very old one. Ambition, self-esteem, and and self-worth lie deep in the heart of men's hearts. You remember what John said of Diotrephes in 1 John, uh, or 3 John verse 9, Diotrephes, who loves to be first. The authorized version says he loves the preeminence. And when we think about this argument, uh, arguing about preeminence, it's, it's just ridiculous. Like Muhammad Ali, they were saying, I am the greatest. Oh, really? Oh, really? You think so? Are you the eternal God? Did you exist before you were born? Was your mother a virgin? Did you walk in water? Did you multiply loaves? Did you raise the dead? Can you forgive sins? Are you sinless? Are you God? What a stupid question to ask who is the greatest when they were in the presence of true greatness. To argue about who is the greatest when they are in the presence of one whose greatness surpassed all. And you see, that's what happens when you take your eyes off true greatness, when you take your eyes off Jesus, you begin to think that you're better than you are. When we appreciate who Jesus is, all questions about our place in the pecking order are superfluous because we, are, we, we, we realize that we're nothing in comparison to him. How absurd for the disciples to be arguing about their greatness when they were in the presence of true greatness, the argument that developed. The second thing I want you to notice is the contrast that was made. Look at verses 25 and 26. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority uh, over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Here Jesus contrasts greatness in the eyes of the world with greatness in his kingdom. And he speaks of the kings of this world, the kings of the earth, the Gentiles, who for the most part were totalitarian and despotic in their reign. And he says, greatness in the eyes of the world is to be measured in terms of authority and in terms of prestige. He says in verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority. So that greatness in the eyes of the world is to be measured in the ability to call the shots, to give out orders, to tell people what to do. It's, it's that position that gives you authority over others. So, Greatness in the eyes of the world is to be measured in that ability to tell people what to do, and also in terms of, uh, of reputation. Look at what he says there in verse 25 again, and they are called benefactors. So, these people in this position of authority endeavor to do good. The word literally, benefactor, literally means well-doer. In other words, they, they want to do good. They are a, a benefit uh, of those that are under them. Um, the ESV says, are called benefactors. You're using the NIV, and there's a, there's a little difference there. It says, they call themselves benefactors. 
That actually is the more accurate translation. It's, it's not that others give them this title, benefactor, but they give this title to themselves. Leon Morris, in his commentary, translates the phrase, get themselves called benefactors. William Henriksen translates it, self-styled benefactors. So it's not that others refer to them as benefactors, but they are self-designated benefactors. In other words, they're motivated by what other people think of them. Now, that's literally true. There were two uh, Egyptian kings, Ptolemy I, Ptolemy II, uh, who lived three to four hundred years before the birth of Jesus, and they were known as the great benefactor. And Jesus is giving us an insight into worldly motivation. The reason these kings exercise the authority and the reason they, they do good is that they might gain for themselves a reputation. It had all to do with uh, prestige. Do you know Comic Relief was on, uh, on Friday evening? And I sometimes wonder about the, the motives of the celebrities taking part in those charitable events. Is their motivation to do good or to promote their careers? Maybe I'm being a little cynical, but it so often seems to me that it's, it's a pouring forth of their own ego. It's a, a platform for self-indulgent um, uh, profile-raising. So, greatness in the eyes of the world is to be measured by authority and by reputation. But Jesus draws a contrast, and he says in verse 26, but not so with you. You're not to be like that. That's not how you are to measure greatness in terms of that ability to call the shots and in terms of that reputation that you have with others. That's worldly. That's unspiritual. That's what the kings of the Gentiles do. This is not how my kingdom works. No, he says, true spiritual greatness is to be measured by humility. Look at verse 26 again. Here is the vital contrast that we need to grasp. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. The youngest person in society, in that culture, was the least honored. Age and honor went together. The youngest was, by definition, always the lowest. So, do you see what Jesus is saying? If you want to be great, seek to be low. In other words, greatness is to be measured by littleness. Greatness in God's kingdom is to be measured by humility. You need to think differently, says Jesus. Don't think as the world thinks. The world thinks in terms of authority, calling the shots, and reputation, people speaking well of you. True greatness is to be seen in the person who is like the youngest, who sees themselves as the most insignificant. This isn't the first time, of course, that Jesus uh, spoke of humility. Back in Luke chapter 9, he took a little child and he stood the child in, in, in the midst of the disciples. They were arguing about who was the greatest. And he says, whoever welcomes this little child welcomes me. For he who is least among you, uh, he is the greatest. 
But now Jesus turns that round, and he, he says, not only do you welcome little children, you are to have the littleness of little children. The Lord Jesus thinks most of the man who thinks least of himself. Spurgeon says the higher a man is in grace, the lower he will be in his own estimation. Humility is the mark of true greatness. That's what Jesus is saying. In contrast to the world, which thinks in terms of authority and reputation, what other people say, what other people think. True greatness is to be measured in humility, humility, humility. Somebody came to Augustine and said, uh, what is the greatest virtue of Christianity? And he says, the greatest thing in our religion, the first and greatest thing is humility. The second and greatest thing is humility. The third and greatest thing is is humility. Now, of course, you can't have the top ten of the most humble people uh, in church. It kind of defeats the purpose. Humility is uh, the thing that once you think you have it, you've actually lost it. It's a bit like the church that decided to run a a ballot on who was the most humble person in church, and they awarded that person uh, amidst great celebration uh, one Sunday morning with a, with a ribbon, with a, a medal indicating that they were the most humble, and they took it away the next week because he wore it to church. You can't recognize um, uh, humility in that sense. But let's not fall into the trap of the world, of the Gentiles, of these disciples, and think of greatness in terms of authority, that ability to be the mover and manipulator of others, or reputation when people speak well of you. Let's always look for this grace of humility, and let's remember that the greatest among us must be the youngest contrast that was made. So, the argument that developed, the contrast that was made, the third thing I want you to notice is the principle that was established. So, if humility is the mark of true greatness, how can we identify that humble person? How does that humility express itself? Well, look at the end of verse 26 and into 27. End of uh, verse 26 reads, and the leader as one who serves. Do you see that? Verse 27, for who is the greatest, one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? Once again, Jesus turns conventional wisdom on its head. He asks, who is the greater, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves at the table? Well, it's always in in our thinking the one who's sitting at the table. If you go into an expensive restaurant, the person who is sitting at the table uh, and is able to afford to sit at that table is generally more important than the person who serves at the table. That's generally the case, but not, of course, always because we live in a world of celebrity chefs. But usually that's the case, that the one who is, is served is greater than the one who is doing the serving. But that's not the case in the kingdom. Look at verse 26. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. 
that our value in the kingdom is not to be measured in terms of rule and authority, but in terms of humility and service. That true greatness is not to be seen in, uh, only to be seen in one's humility, but also to be seen in one's service of others. That's the principle that Jesus establishes, that we are called to kingdom service, and that kingdom service involves serving others. That phrase, one who serves, is used three times in the passage, that our calling is to serve others, and greatness is to be measured in terms of that service. When you begin to understand that your work for the Lord doesn't become a competition where you're trying to outdo and outshine others. It becomes a means of helping and serving others. And that's a constant theme throughout the New Testament. Elders are called to serve. Deacons are called to serve. That's what the word deacon actually means, servant. When the deacons are sitting at the table, that's not a position of honor. They're actually serving you. It's an illustration of their service. Your work among the young people is a service. Your work in the Sunday school and the youth fellowship uh, amongst the elderly, it's a, a service. You are serving the Lord by serving others. That's the principle that is established by Jesus. Paul writes to the Galatians in Galatians 5 and verse 13 and says, serve one another in love. Our calling is to service. And greatness in God's kingdom is not to be measured in terms of authority and reputation. It's to be measured in terms of humility and service. Do you see yourself in that way? Do you see yourself as a servant? People so often choose a church on the basis of what that church can do for them or give to their family. They come to church to get. The Bible says that you should come to church to give, to give your worship, to give your service, to give yourself to others. So, to paraphrase the words of John F. Kennedy, you do not ask what your church can do for you, but you ask what you can do for your church. Ask not what others can do for you, but what you can do for others. So, you see the principle that Jesus is establishing. Greatness in the eyes of the world is to be measured in terms of authority, lording it over others, and in terms of reputation, they call themselves benefactors. But greatness in the eyes of the world is to be measured, contrary to that, by humility and service. We are called to adopt the posture of a slave, the posture of a servant, and serve others. And if we're true followers of Jesus, that should be our attitude. Greatness is to be measured in service. See, the argument that developed, the contrast that was made, the principle that was established. The fourth thing I want you to notice is the example that was set. Notice what Jesus says there at the end of verse 27. But I am among you as one who serves. One who serves. Jesus sets himself forth as our example, our model, our pattern when it comes to this service. 
That's what Paul says of Christ. You remember that great Christological masterpiece in Philippians chapter 2, that though he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be retained, something to be held on to, but made himself nothing, listen, taking the nature of a servant of a servant, and being made in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. In his humiliation, he took to himself not only our nature, but the nature of a servant, the nature of a slave. The greatest and the best manifested was manifested uh, in, uh, by humility and, and, and service. As he says in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give himself as a ransom for many. That's what uh, Jesus is saying here, that he is among the disciples as one who serves. Now, when you put the gospel records together, that becomes all the more significant. Remember, this is the celebration of the Passover in the upper room on the night before Jesus died. And when they came to that upper room, there was a, a bowl of water, and uh, there was a, a towel, but um, there was no servant present. So, remember, the youngest person then would be the one who had to adopt the, uh, the position of, of, the, of humility but the disciples wouldn't do that. And there they are, standing on their dignity and refusing to adopt the position of the, uh, of the slave and wash the feet of the disciples. And so, they, they come to the table. And remember, the table uh, it wasn't like our table where you could hide your feet under the table. It was a low table. They were on couches, and their dirty feet stretching out behind them was the elephant in the room they could see those feet. And none of the disciples is prepared to take uh, the humble position and wash the disciples' feet. And the Lord gets up, and He takes off His outer garment. He wraps a towel around His waist, and He begins to wash the disciples' feet. And there's this breathless silence as the creature, as the Creator, washes the feet of the creature. All they could hear is the splash of the water and the friction of the tile as He dries their feet. At the end of it, Jesus gets up and He says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. And after that amazing act of humility and service, they carry on with the Passover meal and the institution of the Lord's Supper. And so, when this argument breaks out, Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. I have just shown you what it means to be a servant, to take the humble position, to take the position of the youngest. You are to serve one another. That's what it means to be my follower. Don't lord it over people. Don't act in a way to gain a reputation for yourself. Serve one another. One commentator calls this basin theology that you either use that basin of water like Pilate to wash your hands of others and their needs, or you use that, use that basin of water to serve others with their needs. 
And to be like Jesus means that you see yourself as a servant of all. There are some people who just ooze arrogance. They have that air about them. Now, Jesus taught with authority, but he was free from arrogance. He was the personification of humility and servanthood. Do you have that attitude? Is it your delight to wash a few feet for the glory of God? To be prepared to do what others feel is beneath them? As you know, Mary, our caretaker, is on furlough. And, um, and uh, somehow or other, the toilets are still clean, and uh, the paper tiles are still replaced, and uh, the toilet rolls are replaced uh, on their holders. And I was wondering how this would happen, or how it happened, and I came down to church, and I saw a girl there who had come into church, and quietly in the background, she was just getting things ready for those of us that come into church to do the live broadcast on a Sunday. Servant. A servant, when nobody else is looking, willing to humble yourself in the service of others. Are you willing to wash a few feet, wash a few toilets for the sake of the kingdom? If you're like Jesus and following Jesus, you will be willing because that's the example that he has set, and we are to be his followers. I'm among you as one who serves. The argument that developed, the contrast that was made, the principle that was established, the example that was set, and the last thing I want you to notice is the reward that was promised. Look at verses uh, 28 uh, through to 30. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. These verses are really wonderful. The disciples were a bunch of boneheads. Here they are, after having that wonderful example of Jesus and of servanthood and washing their feet after he had instituted the Lord's Supper and graphically, pictorially pictured his death, here they are arguing about their pecking order among themselves. It's shocking and it's scandalous how unspiritually insensitive they are. And yet Jesus says in verse 29, I assign to you as the Father assigned to me a kingdom. That word assigned, the authorized version says uh, appoint. Uh, the NIV says confer. The word literally means to make a covenant, to promise a kingdom. The Father has promised me a kingdom, and I am promising you a kingdom. In spite of their failures, in spite of their shortcomings, in spite of their sin, in spite of their pride, Jesus says, I solemnly promise you a kingdom, a kingdom that no one will ever take away from you, and you will eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. They had stood with Jesus through his trials. The Jews were about to arrest him and hand him over to the Romans, and he would be crucified. But the disciples will share 
share in the joy of the kingdom and somehow, and this is the amazing thing, share in the final judgment of the Jews. Now, do you see what Jesus is saying? In this life, we are called to humility and service. But in the next life, we will rule and reign with Christ. So, no sacrifice that we make in this life, no humility that we display, no service that we render will go unrewarded in the life to come. We will be rewarded in glory. You know, sometimes the devil does put doubts in our minds. He comes to us and he says, you're a great hypocrite. You're just motivated by self and self-promotion, and you're always pushing yourself forward. We argue and bicker over who uh, is important and who comes first at the most inappropriate times at times. We're slow to grasp the spiritual lessons that Christ teaches us over and over again. We jostle and we wriggle and we push and we fight for our rights and our position. And sometimes we can even feel by denying him and fleeing from him, just as the disciples and Peter were about to do. And we are not worthy of anything. We're not worthy even of taking his name. And he says, I have assigned to you a kingdom. I, I promise you a kingdom. I confer upon you the kingdom. I have covenanted with you to give you a kingdom. Just as the Father has covenanted with me, so I covenant with you. Isn't that wonderful? In spite of our failings, in spite of our, our, our egocentric personalities that we become so obsessed with ourselves and our standing, in spite of all that, in grace, he still promises a kingdom. Is it not worth living a life of self-denial? Is it not worth serving him in his kingdom and in his church? Of course it is. Just look at verse 30, that you may eat and drink, I love this, at my table in my kingdom. My table, my kingdom. That's the great promise of heaven. Jesus to the dying thief, today I tell you the truth, you will be with me in paradise. To be, to depart, as Paul says in Philippians 1, and be with Christ, to be with Christ. If I go and prepare a place for you, Jesus says, uh, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. My table and my kingdom. That's the great reward. So, is it worth living this life of humility? Is it worth um, uh, being different from the world who measures success in terms of authority and reputation? Yes, it is. Because one day, one day, we'll be at His table in His kingdom forever and ever. And when it comes to humility and when it comes to service, we need to keep our eye on that future, that future where we will rule and reign with Christ. Amen.